Um, so when did you guys go to San Diego? Monday morning. So we woke up at 3 a.m. Um, the bar opened at 4.30. Holy cow. So, yeah, it took us like about an hour to drive down there. Um, and we thought... How did you guys get there? About 4.50. Oh, okay. Yeah, and the whole place was full inside. There were no seats inside. It was pitch black outside. Thank God they had like heat lamps. Um, so we had to sit outside. It was so cold. <laughs> I drank so much hot tea. <laughs> yeah. Was tea free? <laughs> no. I feel like it should have been <laughs> should that <laughs> early. And it's a pub. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, man. I couldn't um, believe how many people that. showed up. Well, this it's the World Cup. I know. Well, look at this thing, 5 a.m. That's the American and you coming out, Deanna. I know. <laughs> this is the original football we're talking about. So, um, man, that's crazy. Yeah. And I and I run lost, so <laughs> that sucks. How was the drive home after that? It wasn't bad. Um, okay. Yeah, there was. A little traffic going towards San Diego, but um, yeah, it was a pretty easy drive back home. Was it tense in the car, though? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I don't think he thought they would actually win, but he was disappointed, my husband, that um, that they lost by so much. Oh. Yeah. And the yeah, commentators were. Uh, I think it was like 6-2, 6 Wow, two, okay, that's a high-scoring game. Yeah. And the commentators were British, right? Like, you guys are probably watching it on, like, the no, British like channel. Fox, Fox Sports. Really? <laughs> that's who's showing it, so their comments were, like, kind of upsetting to my husband. But... Yeah. Were they racist? Not, not, like, outright, but just... <laughs> Just your standard. Just like comments they wouldn't make like to other teams who are probably losing. Just your run of the mill American yeah. racism. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just like less hostile and overt racism, just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I know. But yeah, last time I watched the World Cup, I was actually studying for the bar. I brought oh, my no. law school books um, <laughs> to the bar, I had them like spread out with earplugs in. This is when you were with your husband still, right? Like yeah. You guys were just in San Francisco. Today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Crazy. No, I haven't watched it since I was a kid because my dad watches it. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have patience for sports anymore. The other day, Jeff was like, um, what did he say? Oh, I was like, can you take Penny for a walk? I'm like, if she's due for a walk, can you take Penny for a walk? And he's like, can it wait? Like, I just have two more minutes. And I'm like, no, it cannot wait. That's two basketball minutes, okay? <laughs> two basketball minutes are not the same thing as real life minutes. So, um, yeah, sports is a point of contention in my household. My my That's like um, one of Jeff's very special interests. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, Jeff has autism, very mild um, Asperger's and he has special interest and and part of that is like it's almost obsessive and he's very obsessed with sports especially like seattle teams and all of the teams women's volleyball at uw (laughs) (laughs) all of the damn teams 
Um, it was very sad when the Sonics moved away. But yeah, we don't talk about sports in the house. <laughs> Are your kids into sports? Um, you know, it's funny because Otto calls himself a sports boy. <laughs> oh, that's cute. <laughs> he says, I'm a sports boy. And I'm like, what's your sport that you do? And he says, running. He's like, I'm super fast, mom. Aww. It's very cute because he's not. But, uh, he So Otto thinks he's a sports boy. He calls himself a sports boy. He's pretty uncoordinated. I'm going to get him into um, martial arts, I think. But Ozzy, my one-year-old, holy cow, that kid's got an arm on him. I, I really think he's going to be a sports boy. That one is like really good aim. And really a lot of force, a lot of power. Yeah. Like he was across the living room from Otto and he's angry. He's got a temper on him, but he took a wood block and he just chucked it at Otto. Like clearly he was trying to hit Otto and got him, <laughs> pegged him right in the head. And I was just like, don't throw things at your brother. But also, did you see that? Like, yeah, <laughs> we should get him, we should sign this kid up for baseball or something. Yeah. He's really good. <laughs> um yeah i thought about soccer i thought about getting my kids into soccer but then i was like no the weekends the long Mm -hmm. games the early weekends the soccer parents the like socializing with them i am not here for that yeah um that's a lot (laughs) it is it's too much and it's too early for me to be socializing it's a lot to ask for but my therapist was saying then um what about tennis you can get them into tennis and then you don't have to do that and i'm like oh my genius yeah. yes tennis is the thing because <laughs> i play tennis jeff plays tennis um it's a pretty individualized sport mm-hmm. i think i'm gonna get him into like yeah tennis lessons yeah that would be good yeah yeah oh, i love tennis i like want to so take tennis nice. lessons it's fun yeah. you should do it i always encourage people to like play tennis because you're probably better than you think we used to play uh, pop tennis when we were in um in LA, we'd go down to Marina Del Rey every weekend. Um, it's like smaller, a smaller court with deflated tennis balls and a different racket. <laughs> it's kind of like a mix between like pickleball and tennis. Yeah, I'm like, how is that different no. from pickleball? But I guess pickleball is with a wiffle ball. paddles. Yeah, yeah, you play with wood paddles, right? Like plastic. Oh, I think plastic paddles. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I've never a wiffle ball, right? It's yeah, a wiffle ball. ball and... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm not a big pickleball person at all. I find that you have to run too much. <laughs> pickleball. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yet I play tennis, but I, yeah. So, and how do they deflate the tennis balls? Just like you pop just a, like a little like needle thing in it. Hmm. Yeah. Just so they don't, um, go as far i guess not as bouncy interesting okay yeah it's really fun though i think it's closer to tennis than pickleball Um, yeah yeah i miss it but there's no courts out here that we know of to play so i bet you there are check the high school yeah they have a lot of tennis courts so we're like we might as well just learn how to play tennis oh oh are there these are different kind of courts they're smaller yeah, oh, so it's I like the size of the pickleball cord, but the pickleball net is higher. So. <laughs> See, I thought you were just playing on a regular tennis court no, and just no. like using the inside lines. <laughs> no, they have them at the only place I know. There's not too many. Um, Venice Beach has a few of them, and 
Um, and we used to go to a park in Marina Del Rey. But now they're getting like everyone playing pickleball there and bringing like their own net to make it like higher. And so everyone's getting really mad because there's more pickleball courts than there are pop tennis yeah. courts. Yeah. That's lame. I don't know why pickleball is so in right now. I, I think the kids are just learning about it or something. But the the boomers are like, we've been here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've been doing this. Okay, so welcome to Founders Vega. Today we are talking about industry standards. Um, I want to start off by saying that industry standards are not the same thing as legal standards. They, nothing that we're talking about today, number one, nothing we ever say is legal advice. But number two, nothing that we're talking about here today is meant to give anyone any kind of like set points or say that this is what they should be doing. We just want to talk about the things that have been widely accepted within the creative wedding wedding industry. Um, whether or not we agree with them is is a different story. But the point of talking about industry standards is kind of twofold. Number one, while they're not legal standards, industry standards can shed a lot of light on gray areas where there might be disputes between professionals. So... Um, We'll talk about second shooters and, you know, what what the arrangement should look like if you don't have a contract and if you don't have, like, an explicit understanding between each other. What is the industry standard so that you can, um, you know, make arguments for whichever point you're trying to make? Um, and the other thing, the more important thing is, you know, kind of goes back to the mission, like the point of Desiree Wynn Lingle when that was in existence and, and Deanna's law firm and you know, creative's legal resource is to really try to raise the industry standards and, um, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships. That's always been kind of like the, um, the idea behind this. And in order to do that, you need to see how far you have to come to raise the industry standards. And the only way you can do that is if there's transparency. So we need to see what everyone's doing. Um, in order to make sure that we're not undercutting other people, number one, and if you are undercutting people, be explicit about that, you know, like tell your clients that this is not the typical rate, or this is not something that is normal, but I'm going to do it as a courtesy. Um, that way you're not underselling the rest of the industry and making it very difficult for someone else down the line who might have to work with that person for, say, their maternity photos or their newborn photos later on. And then they're like extra mad that they didn't get the same kind of treatment. Right. Um, so with that, let's get started. Um, Deanna, what's our first topic today? The first topic today is second shooters. So yeah, I think second shooters for the photographers out there. Um, yeah, there's a lot of industry standards in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that you've been working with a lot of clients lately that have been dealing with second shooter issues. So why don't you go ahead and start the, the yeah. most glaring one? Yeah. So I think one of the biggest um, industry standards is that second shooters are typically independent contractors. And mm-hmm. because of this, they, they own the copyright. So they would be giving the main photographer a license to use yes. the photos. Yeah. I think we need to do a whole other episode on just licenses and all of the nuances involved there, because legally speaking, there's 
um, a lot of details involved with licensing and most photographers are not giving out proper licenses um, that could potentially backfire on them later on. But yeah, I mean, the, the idea that someone is an independent contractor, um, that's really important, right? Especially in California where labor laws are really strict. So if you want to enjoy the the flexibility of having an independent contractor, you can't make the terms of the contract a work made for hire, which is one way that people try to get the copyright of other photographers that are shooting for them. Um, You know, there's a, a few issues with that, but I think that the industry standard is for the the second photographer to keep the copyright to their photos while giving the main photographer and thus their clients um, a license to use those images. Yep. And then with that, the second shooter would, of course, then still be able to use the photos that they took to put on their social media or their um, portfolio, their website. Yeah, that's the next industry standard, which is um, the second shooters are allowed to display their work now, usually that's after some period of time, like there's usually a delay period so that you're not publishing photos as a second shooter before the main shooter has had time to deliver the photos to the client. Um, but assuming that, you know, you're past the delay period, you should be able, the second shooter should be able to use the photos in their own portfolio to promote their work. That includes editing their own work and not using edited photos of the main photographer, right? Um, were you going to add something, Diana? Oh, no, just gonna say what you okay. said, yeah. <laughs> um, when a second shooter publishes their photos, it's important to provide the correct attribution. And typically that is something like, Um, second shot for this photographer or shot in association with this photographer. And um, part of that is transparency, right? You're communicating to your own potential clients that this is not a wedding that you booked per se, but this is the work that you produced from that wedding, right? So you're not giving the false impression that you're um, maybe booking above your pay grade at that Mm -hmm. time. But there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of benefit to doing that. Number one, you're going to build trust with your clients. And number two, you're maintaining a good relationship with your main photographer. And hopefully you'll learn something a little bit from the main photographer. Like that's one of the benefits of second shooting when you're starting out. Um, I want to add that pay. This is a topic that like no one is really clear about. And I don't really think that there is a good industry standard for pay rates but it, the number tends to hover around $300 per day for novice second shooters. What do you think, Deanna? Have you come across anything different? Uh, that's that's pretty standard, what I've seen. Yeah. I, yeah. I think um, and per day, typically an eight-hour wedding is considered per day. Mm-hmm. When I was starting out, I remember second shooting for free. I did second shooting for free. I did um, day rates and most days were really brutal. They were like, gosh, between 10 and 14 hours. And it was like a flat rate of like 300 a day. How do you know when you should be charging more? 
um, where I ended was charging by the hour and depending on the location. So if it was a local wedding, I was charging something like, what is that, 50 an hour? And if it's a non-local wedding, 75 an hour. Um, and up to eight hours because I'm like, no, no, no. Anything over eight hours <laughs> is another fee. Yep. Um, so how do you know when it's time to increase your rates as a second shooter? Ask yourself. Like, number one, am I dreading shooting this wedding <laughs> next? Because if you are, that probably means that you don't need it. You don't need it for your portfolio. You don't need it, like, you don't need it to build yourself. And so if you don't need it in a way that is not going to compensate you, you are probably beyond the point where you need to be second shooting for experience. So little side detour there. Um, oh, second shooters. Don't promote your business. Like that should go without saying, but you'd be surprised. Um, don't friend guests. Um, and don't deliver photos to guests. Okay. Like another side story here that happened to me one time when I had a second shooter. The second shooter was going on an international trip like the day later, like the next day. So I don't know if they did this because they were like, screw it, I'm out of here. <laughs> but the shooter gave one of the guests at my client's wedding a portrait that they took of this person. And then that person posted it on their social media. And then I got a nasty gram from the bride oh, saying, no. <laughs> WTF, how come this person got photos before me? I don't even like this cousin. I can't believe they got it. And all of this. And I'm like, what? What is happening right now? <laughs> Um, so I had to deal with that and it was just a really unpleasant situation. And one of those things where I was able to turn it around and say, basically like, I'm appalled, like this is a breach of my, um, copyright contract, that this is a breach of our contract right now, that person needs to take it down and, and this and that. So then the bride kind of like changed her attitude a little bit and was like, uh oh, <laughs> so, um, but we took care of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, don't don't do that, man. Like your loyalty should be to the person that you're working for, not the guests of the wedding. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Don't be passing out your business cards. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You should be passing out the business cards of the main shooter. Yeah. Main shooters, give your second shooters your business cards so that they can pass it out. Um, and meals. Okay. Yep. Don't forget. Be cool. <laughs> don't forget to feed your second shooter. If you're shooting over four hours, you should provide a meal. Um, even if your client, like the the couple, is not providing meals, you as the hiring photographer should at least have snacks, you know, mm -hmm. um, because it is standard to be fed at a wedding over, you know, four hours. Um, most people will not bring their own snacks. Um, the next category that we want to talk about is vendors. Industry standard between vendors. Now, this is always a little bit sticky, but I think that this is a place where it's important to create conversation and open dialogue between vendors because they're, it should be more of a cohesive team instead of like competition between different groups. So, for example, um, when I'm delivering photos to vendors, it's important. It's like part of my license agreement to the vendors that they credit everyone. 
So if you're going to use my photos, make sure you tag all of the vendors in the wedding. And I usually provide a list based off of what the clients give me. Um, you know, share the love. And I think most people do that because it's also very like advantageous on the algorithm with social media. Uh, photo and video teams usually communicate pretty well at the wedding. If you guys already know each other and you already work together, um, usually there's no additional like communication required, but it's not uncommon to have the video person want to reach out to the photography team or vice versa if they haven't worked together before, just so they can be on the same page about like shooting style, not necessarily timelines, but style. Um, yeah. Let me think. You want to add anything to that, Deanna? No, I'm going to go to um, another industry standard for hair and makeup artists. So it's typical for them to take photos um, on their phones, but make sure you don't slow down production. Yeah, really important. Um, most of the delays that I've experienced have been caused by like running late from the very beginning with um, hair and makeup. And, and often it's not the hair and makeup artist's fault. It's like usually the client who wants to change something or, you know, um, they just kind of start the day off late. But it's important that like, if it's already running late, maybe just drop your business card to the photographer and be like, can I, can you send me some of these <laughs> um, when you're done? Or just snap a couple and, and get out of there, you know? Yeah. But don't slow things down. The other, the final category that we want to talk about with industry standards is the standard between clients. Um, now, reminder at this part, everything we talked about before this was a business to business relationship. And so industry standard can really shed some light on where there might be differences and what is probably going to win out between the businesses. The next part we're going to talk about are clients and that is where industry standard is not going to help you as much because like we said in the beginning, industry standard does not equal legal standard. So, I mean, a good one is the first one we'll start with, which is the 50% deposit. That is definitely industry standard across the board, regardless of the type of work that you do. I see it in just about everything. In fact, 50% tends to be the number, the only number that I see. Um for the deposit and usually people call it a retainer these days. I remember when people were interchangeable about it back in like 2013, but most people know that a deposit is not um, something that they can keep. It's, it's not non-refundable, whereas a retainer is. Um, it is industry standard though to describe it as a deposit. People usually say 50% required in the beginning and then it'll be applied to the balance at the end, which is a deposit. Um, that is definitely an industry standard that is not going to be legally upheld. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've done a bunch of episodes where we talk about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you haven't listened to them, you know, definitely listen. Yeah. <laughs> definitely listen. Yeah. Um, another standard that we pass on the clients is don't edit the photos. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, going back a minute, like, because industry standard isn't going to be the the main like rule between you and your client, like business to client, 
these are things that you need to make explicit in your contract because the contract is going to be what governs your relationship with your client. And that's going to be the thing that um, will win out at the end if there's a, you know, dispute over something. So not editing the photos, that's something that you need to include. I include it in the contract and the license just to remind the clients of like what the terms of use are. Um, and no editing means like really no editing, no Photoshopping, no Instagram filters, mm-hmm. cropping, uh, cropping. Exactly. Don't add your own logo. Um, yeah. Don't manipulate the photos. And that's, that's under copyright law. Mm-hmm. What's another and, one, Deanna? And okay. also you want to um, make sure that you tag or credit the photographer that took the photo. Um, yeah, you want to make sure that you add that into your contract. And that's another thing. I put my license and the contract, which is like, if you want your clients to tag you or credit you when they're posting your photos on social media, make it easy for them to do that. So provide your handle in at least your contract and license, but it's, in, you know, it's a good idea to add it if they're not already following you um, to your delivery email your delivery message saying hope you love it please check out my instagram and give me a follow um if you want to see like any behind the scenes or whatever you might be putting on your social media yeah but i guess you could also if you wanted to write um give them a a photo like a social media size photo that has a watermark on it already yeah that was so like i think when i was practicing it was kind of hard to get clients to like to enforce the tagging mm-hmm. right like on social media like on facebook or instagram kind of hard to enforce that unless you're following your clients yourself and like who has time to like eagle eye check if they're tagging you and everything um one thing that we that i used to do is like provide a social media ready copy which is like a downsized image that contains like a really small watermark for my handle and that way, the client, even if they don't tag me in it, it's still in the photo. Yeah. And I did, like, have it sized out where if, like, they did square crop, it would still be on the photo. Um, and square crop is something that, you know, like, you – that would fall under, like, don't edit the photos. But, like, yeah. how nitpicky are you going to be with that? <laughs> Most people are not that nitpicky. Um, I think this – doesn't really happen a lot, but it is industry standard for clients to not submit the photos to publishers. What is more common, though, is the clients sharing the photos with other vendors, and that is a big no-no. So um, remember, typically, you give your clients a personal use license for photo or video, and that means that they're able to use the pictures to share between family and friends and make photo books and print out photos for their own enjoyment. But if they're using the photos or disseminating the photos for the purposes of commercial use or like to make a profit, that is not within the scope of, per, of a personal use. So when your client shares the photos with other vendors who are going to use it to promote their own business, that's usually outside the scope of personal use. Um, now, if you're, this one is like a weak industry standard because I think 
there's definitely two camps about it. There are people who are like, I don't care. I let my clients do whatever they want with the photos. If they want to share it with the other vendors, then cool. That saves me time. But then there are other photographers who are like, no, I want control of my photos. And I think that's totally legitimate. I definitely fall into the second camp of like, you know, if you're going to be a professional in the industry, value your work. And part of that is um, the delivery, right? Like how you communicate with your clients as well as how you communicate with other vendors and delivering the photos to the other vendors with a commercial use license is um, an opportunity to kind of like set your own tone with them, which is that you're professional and that you know what your obligations and your rights are. Yeah. Um, I will say though, other vendors, please do photographers a favor and download the photos as quick as you can. Don't wait months. Don't wait months. Don't wait till the day before you have a bridal show to email the photographer and say, hey, remember those photos you took for me nine months ago? Could you send me a copy so that I can print it out for a bridal show tomorrow? Um, true story. That did happen to me. And I'm like, nope, I'm going to be on a plane to Honolulu tomorrow. So good luck. Um, oh, okay. another really common one is no raws. Right. No raw photos, no raw footage to the clients. Yep. This day and age, because people have access to editing raw photos, like I think you can just do it in your on your like iPhone, basically. Um, clients are starting to expect raw photos. And so it's important that you have that in your contract really clearly that you're not going to deliver raw photos. And editing is not part of this whole thing. Yeah, but I think another one also is right, there's no extreme retouching. So make sure your clients understand that you're not going to be doing magic and removing like all sorts of things from the photos and or adding things, adding things like you had a client where the client's client was mad at them for not retouching the coat tails and the coat Mm -hmm. jackets that were blown open by the wind because it was extremely windy that day. Yep. Like and I th- people think that you can just do magic or something and make it completely different. Yeah, and I think like removing like a coffee cup from a photo and coffee cups, beer cans, you know, like love handles, braces. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So be really clear about that. I think to some extent I get why people kind of assume that because we live in such a Photoshop age and like so many things are retouched. But on the other hand, if that's not something that you're offering, like make it really explicit to the clients. Um, I learned early on, like to save myself some time with what is extreme retouching or what is the normal level of retouching that I do. I had a magazine where it talked about like my process and, and everything um, that like what the workflow looks like with me. And one of those was dedicated to editing. So like I would show clients before and after photos um, so that they can get an idea of what the environment looked like, just raw. And then the level that I'll be including in the work that we do. And then I also included examples of what extreme retouching looks like and prices for that. (laughs) That That's a good idea. 
home for hair and makeup artists and floral designers it is industry standard that the trial sessions or any kind of like mock-up sessions are not included with the services that your clients are initially buying and you want to really make that clear to your clients because you know i think we know that as an industry but most clients Remember, this is their first time having a wedding many times or and their first opportunity to hire um, a hair and makeup artist or their first opportunity to hire a floral designer. Um, so they might not know all these nuances and it's really important to make that clear in your initial pricing or your initial brochures so that they don't expect that there's going to be a trial session as part of their package um, because trial sessions are super common, uh, at least in the hair and makeup space. Um, so yeah, um, one industry standard that I really don't like for hair and makeup artists is getting paid the day of the event that I know is really, really common. And it's, that's a weird, I don't know. It's risky because I've seen many instances where the bride or her guests are getting work done. Um, write checks and I'm sure that's not a problem like they're not going to bounce but like there's always the potential for that to happen I think these days if you're getting Venmoed um, that's fine but what if they don't Venmo you like what happens if they don't pay you that day like if they are just like oh I'll get you later yeah you know you've already delivered on the work and it's just that is very stressful um, that's one industry standard that I'd like to change and see everyone charging, you know, just like the floral designer or the, um, the photographers, you know, charge 30 days before the event and say, this is, you're going to pay me now that way on your wedding day, you can enjoy the day and not have to worry about money and having enough payment and tip and blah, 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 yep. you know? Um, and that way, if they don't have the wedding, you can always return the fee right to them because you didn't complete the services but you don't want it the other way where you do the work and then they don't pay you and then they go off to the honeymoon and it's like you're trying to you know track them down yeah we definitely don't want that another one is um that florals need to stay cool so uh, make sure that your clients know this you don't want your flowers to get all wilted before the the Ugh. event starts God, I mean, talk about industry standard, right? Like, that's not even just industry standard. That's just physics. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think most people know that, but, you know, assume that your client does it, doesn't know that. Like, you want to assume that you have the least sophisticated, oh, sorry, the least sophisticated consumer, meaning that you're working with a total newbie and they don't know that. So the best thing to do is make sure you cover your bases and say that, you know, um, extreme temperatures can cause wilting or early um, perish, perishing of the design, something like that to inform the clients of what their responsibilities are. But it is like, it, it's commonly known that you need to keep florals refrigerated. <laughs> um, but yeah, we've had cases that too and finally with with floral designers that like the price will fluctuate you know I think that's one of the really hard things about floral design is anticipating the market um this is a really good example now with like supply chain issues 
And I've said it before, I totally contemplated the pandemic when I wrote my contracts. And I always thought like, what if there's some kind of like global disaster where you can't get peonies, right? Or you have to, um, you know, where this variety is not available or these, this really popular in-demand flower is not available. And sadly, we saw that with the pandemic where they were like burning crops of flowers because no one was able to buy them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to communicate that in your contract to clients that it is very typical for the market rate of flowers to change where like if you're booking me eight months in advance of your wedding, eight months from now, the price of these type of varieties might be really, really high. And so what is your strategy for dealing with that? Um, And that should all be in the contract. Okay. That's all I have for this one. Do you have anything else, Deanna? No, I'm not for floral designers, but I think the last thing that's really important is that clients um, need to know that rescheduling may not mean the same price um, if the new date is far out. Yes, that's right. Good one. Um, Yeah, if your clients kind of assume that they booked you and they locked in your rates. So it might be a surprise if they try to reschedule their wedding for like 18 months from now and they expect Mm -hmm. to pay you what your rates were at the time that they booked you. And sometimes, you know, they book you a year in advance of their wedding and then they have to reschedule that wedding to 18 months later, you're looking at two and a half years from the time that they booked you to the time that you actually shoot. So be explicit about that in your contract. And we did an episode on how to do that. That's all I got. (laughs) Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, that is it for this episode. We will catch you in the next one. Bye. you want us to shout out on the pod let us know in the link in our bio we want to celebrate with you few things you should know founders speak is for educational purposes only nothing in this podcast should be construed as legal advice always consult an attorney licensed in your state if you need legal help in some states like california this podcast may be considered attorney advertising